Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 28th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I'm going to present a critical review of The Sheep and the Goats by Bertrand Compare, and hope next Friday to return to my commentary on the Gospel of John. On tape, this was actually only a 10-minute sermon, but we will probably make it a 75-minute discussion, if not longer. I have included, I will include an original copy of the audio to the sermon with this presentation. I haven't done that in the past. It just struck me tonight that perhaps I should. This is the um, at the Compare archive at Christagenia. The audios from Compare are posted as they were originally distributed on cassette tapes, and many of Compare's sermons are rather short, so. A 10-minute sermon, and it's at the end of the particular tape that it's on. So you would have to listen to um, the second half of a tape and probably 20 minutes at least of other stuff before you found this. As with all of Compare's sermons, which were transcribed by Gene Snyder and then digitized by Clifton Emmerheiser, some editing and changes were made, so none of these are word-for-word word from Compare, but they are close enough to be accurate representations of what he said. Gene substituted, um, Compare used Jesus and Lord, and Gene substituted Yahshua and Yahweh. <clears throat> Gene did that. That's evident in the, um, the book of Compare sermons sold by Kingdom Identity Ministries. And Clifton maintained that. Clifton digitized Gene's <clears throat> sermons because Gene wouldn't send Clifton the CD with the files. And <clears throat> Clifton is responsible for having posted most of what we have at the Compare Archive. I can't even know with certainty because Compare did a lot of his sermons several times, and I know that. I've heard several versions of some of them. I can't even know for certainty if the audio version which we have posted at the Compare archive is the same as what Gene had originally transcribed. This evening, some people may think that I'm trying to reignite an old feud or open old wounds. I have no wounds. Not from my work in Christian identity, anyway. Some people may like to think I do or have tried to impose them on me, but no, nothing bothers me. It just rolls off my back. So I'm not trying to reignite an old fight or open old wounds. Actually, I have a purpose for recounting an old dispute here that transcends the dispute itself. And sometimes these things have to be explained it's been several years since I've discussed a particular individual, so tonight I'm going to mention him for the first time in quite a while. But like I said, there's a purpose to it. I remember first learning about Christian identity, and I've told this story probably 
a dozen times in different ways from a small collection of books that did not say much at all about those races which were outside of the scriptures, or at least which were not direct subjects of the scriptures. There, there was E. Raymond Capp's Abrahamic Covenant, Bertrand Compré's Your Heritage, Robert Balakias's Uncovering the Mysteries of Your Hidden Inheritance, even William J. Cameron's The Covenant People. Cameron is more famous for his work on the international Jew for Henry Ford's paper, The Dearborn Independent. But few people familiar with that also know that Cameron was an identity Christian. At that early time, I also read quite a few things from Wesley Swift, Richard, Richard Kelly Hoskins, Howard Rand, Frederick Haberman, and at least a half dozen other identity writers. Back then, I also subscribed to a paper called the Jubilee, Pacific Northwest, I think in Oregon, which in each issue had run an article by Ted Wyland. So, in hindsight, it is not a wonder the paper was soft on the race issue, and even then I recognized Wyland's universalism. So I never read more than a couple of his articles, and I never renewed that subscription. I think I had it for six months, and that was it. I didn't want any more. But after reading a few dozen or so identity books and a host of other materials, although I don't remember exactly how much I read, as this was back in 1997 and early 1998, I began to realize that there were vast differences of opinions among various identity writers concerning certain very important subjects. Later, reading about the history of Christian identity itself, I began to realize that there were different reasons for all of those varying opinions. One reason is personal context, referring to the attitudes and opinions or the worldview, which is formed by the time and place in which one lives, and also by one's own experiences. Another is the fact that people often seek to justify their own opinions and sentiments through scripture, rather than forming their opinions and changing their sentiments by conforming themselves to scripture. Paul didn't tell Christians to conform the Bible to themselves. He told Christians to conform themselves to Christ. Sadly, there are many, there are way too many men who want to verify their own feelings rather than inquire as to how God himself feels about a thing. And we have such men in Christian identity as well as in the denominational churches. The best general example of this phenomenon is the early variant of Christian identity, which is called British Israel. The Farrar Fenton Bible was made by a British Israel adherent, and it purposely, and I could show these out, I could demonstrate them all, it purposely mistranslated important passages in order to support 
British Israel doctrines. English patriots who were proud of their empire accepted the heresy of dominion theology in order to justify the empire. Then later, and evidently because Jews were so prominent in British society in the mid-19th century, it also accepted the lie that the Jews were Judah and imagined some sort of biblical brotherhood between Saxons and Jews. But this should be no wonder, since one of its most prominent early writers was a banker named Edward Hines, who also helped to demonize the German people as Assyrians and Huns when even earlier British identity writers or their immediate sources, such as Sharon Turner, knew that the Germans were indeed kindred to the English. The favorable position given the Jews, which Edward Hines had espoused and successfully promoted, was absolutely contrary to that of the earlier John Wilson, whom Hine had supposedly studied and followed. So British Israel doctrines were formed in a manner which accommodated and justified both the British Empire and world Jewish financial hegemony, as well as British hatred for Germany, while making excuses for the peculiar Jewish religion. If Christian identity is true, there could have been no greater poison by which to destroy it. British Israel still has adherents today, many whom identify themselves as Christian identity. Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God adopted all of that from the British Israel crowd. Howard Rand was an early 20th century American Christian identity writer and author who subscribed to at least most of the British Israel professions. There were others similar to him, of course, and some of them much more popular, like Herbert W. Armstrong. But by then, the might of the Anglo-American alliance was shifting to the Americans, although all along it has really been held by the Jews. So there were some modifications which had to be made in matters of doctrine and interpretations of prophecy. Then, since the early Christian identity interpretations of prophecy, which were dependent upon the circumstances of the British Empire, or later, <clears throat> in Compare's time, on the circumstances of the Cold War, even they had to be improved. At Christagenia, we do our best not to speculate over what might happen according to the present political circumstances. However, given the present political circumstances, that is practically impossible to avoid. If we were living, in a living and writing in the days of Compare, we may also have more closely agreed with his interpretations of prophecy. However, Unlike many of the other British Israel offshoots, Howard Rand did not accept 
the lie that the Jews were Judah, believing them to have been Canaanites or Edomites. I should say, I'm sorry, I should say correctly believing them to have been Canaanites or Edomites. William Cameron was just as early or earlier, and neither did he accept the lie that the Jews were the tribe of Judah. From that point, I do not know the entire story of American Christian identity between Howard Rand and the later identity writers and other figures of the 1950s and 60s, such as Gerald L.K. Smith, William Gale, Wesley Swift, Bertrand Compare, and others. But it is not hard to see the results of how Christian identity had developed. These later men certainly followed the better path, which Rand and Cameron were on, understanding that the Jews were indeed descended from the Edomites, and that all Jewish claims concerning their identity are ahistorical lies. Ahistorical, meaning that they are not historical. While some Jews descended in small part from Judah, the Jews certainly are not of Judah. And now we can explain exactly why that is so with precise historical and biblical truth. We have done that many times at Christagenia, and for that reason, we will not do it again tonight. It is beyond the scope of our purpose here this evening. More than any of these men, I liked Bertrand Compare because he was the most practical, always simply sticking to the biblical facts as he saw them, in spite of some of his flaws. But from before the time of Howard Rand, it seems that Christian identity truths had been revealed to men who subsequently left Roman Catholicism or their Baptist, Episcopalian, Methodist, Lutheran, or other churches but they all began preaching a variant of Christian identity which had blended in with their Catholic, Baptist, Episcopalian, Methodist, Lutheran, or other doctrines. I see this phenomenon in many contemporary Christian identity writers, although I won't go down the list here. Whatever they had been raised with, they never completely shed from their worldview. In addition to that, there are those who still believe that the Jews are Judah, or a portion of Judah, or there are those who believe that the Jews are rejected only because they deny Christ, or because they mix their race, while others are more correctly persuaded that the Jews are devils. But then, on the other hand, there are so-called identity Christians who believe that there is no devil, or that there are no devils, and that only the flesh is the devil, which is absolutely ludicrous. But we're not here to address that this evening either. We're only here to attempt to explain, because I think I understand, the reasons for so many different flavors of Christian identity. One element which Rand had missed was reaching back further than Canaan or Esau to determine why they and their offspring were rejected and even cursed by God.
The conclusion to that study is what we call two seed line. So there are identity Christians who are stuck in British Israelism and never made it to the next step of revelation, which was Howard Rand. Then there are identity Christians who made it to Rand and never got to the next step, which is the level which Swift, Gale, and Compare had all attained to. However, Swift, Gale, and Compare had other shortcomings, such as the ridiculous belief in an eighth-day creation, which they used, or perhaps they contrived, but it was around ideas doing this, um, heresies claiming the creation of other races in Genesis chapter 1 had been around since the 18th century. But they had that ridiculous belief in an eighth-day creation, which they used to account for the existence of other races, but which is certainly not true. That leads us to where we are at Christogenia today, because we have rejected that, and we could prove it to be wrong. But I have seen identity Christians on each of these steps who refuse to believe that there can be new revelations of truth. Now, we have never claimed to have new revelations. We only claim to have a slightly better understanding of scriptures that have been with us from the beginning, meaning the scriptures have been with us from the beginning. Apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence in the first century after Christ. It wasn't taught again. Justin Martyr, one of the earliest Christian writers, taught replacement theology. All of the Alexandrians after him, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius of Caesarea, everybody from that school taught replacement theology. It was replacement theology that prevailed in the doctrines of the later Roman Catholic Church and subsequently the Orthodox and all Protestant churches. The resulting churches were Judaized in their thinking accepting so-called replacement theology and had no concept of the only true theology, which is covenant theology. So the scriptures were always read and translated from a universalist replacement theology perspective. And we asserted, we assert that the situation situation. That situation led to many errors of interpretation, some of which were purposeful and blatantly contrary to the meanings of words in the original languages. It is for only about 170 years that the scriptures have been read by anyone from a proper covenant theology perspective. The only translation ever made from that perspective was Fenton's until recently. And Fenton's translation is flawed because it began with the supposition that dominion theology is true, which it is not, and purposely mistranslated certain words and phrases in order to support that supposition. So as a result, all of these stopping points, these different levels of understanding, in all of them, or as a result, out of all of them. There is no consistent Christian identity profession, 
And some differences <clears throat> have much graver consequences than others. The worst, by far, are those identity Christians who would attempt to make Christians out of the other races, even the Jews, like trying to turn pigs into plow oxen or draft horses could ever end in success. Among these are Eli James, Ted Wyland, Charles Weissman, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, and many others. Even Pete Peters had a long-running fetish for Negroes. Some of these call themselves racialists or merely separatists. While accepting other races and even gifting them with blessings, which is absolutely contrary to the admonitions in scripture. Most of these deny what we call two seed line, while others profess to believe it, but they do not really believe it. Some of them really believe in four, six, eight, maybe even 10 or more seed lines, attempting to assign various fates to different races of people, fates which are not found in scripture. That would be Eli James. So what we have in Christian identity is basically a mess. Like the proverbial bowl of spaghetti, the mess is so complex that I know I am not even adequately explaining it here, but I am endeavoring to abbreviate a long story. Basically, I, at first, had perceived that there are two general camps, which are two seed line deniers who tended towards universalism and two seed line adherents who are generally opposed to universalism, or so I thought. In addition to these, I later found that there are fringe groups, such as the No Devil People, who are mostly adherents to the work of Sheldon Emery, but they are much smaller in number. Then there are other fringe elements, like the UFO enthusiasts who followed kooks like Noah Fredericks. These fringes we will not discuss here this evening. And actually, Noah Fredericks, I believe he passed away maybe in 2009, 10, 11, around there. He sent me all of his CDs when I was in prison. I don't know who instigated that, either Noah himself, maybe he saw my writing on Israel Elector or something and looked me up, or maybe somebody who liked Noah Fredericks had him send me those CDs. I couldn't have them because I was in prison and couldn't have CDs, so they were destroyed by the government. And by the time I got out of prison, I had forgotten about Noah Fredericks, only to be reminded about him again some years later. After over 11 years of devoting practically all of my time to study into helping Clifton Emmeheiser, when I finally got out of prison in December of 2008, Eli James, whose real name I later found out is Joseph November, had invited me to do a podcast. Since I had little else to do at the time, being out of prison for only a couple of days, I was more than happy to comply. Eli was recommended to me by an old friend, Ralph Daigle, who was once and for a long time a fellow pastor with James Wickstrom in Michigan. 
After our first podcast, a discussion of part of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which was also with Pastor Ken Gregg, an old clan pastor from East Tennessee, Eli kept inviting me back and I kept complying. And we ended up working together for just over two years, doing podcasts, two podcasts a week, almost every week. Throughout most of that time, Eli seemed to agree with me on nearly every aspect of the issue of race in scripture. Every podcast we did together is still posted at an archive at Christagenia. So the assertion is relatively easy to prove. Then something happened which Clifton and I had always suspected may happen and which Clifton had anticipated would have happened much sooner than it did. Clifton was surprised Eli lasted two years. In the later half of 2010, Eli began to vocally disagree with us on the issue of race. Then he began to publish articles misrepresenting our positions as he argued against us. Eventually, that forced our split in January of 2011. Sometime after we split, and there's a reason why I'm going through all this, dragging all this back through the mud. Sometime after we split, I learned that Joseph November was Eli's real name. I don't care how many stories he tells. Joseph November is his real name. When he swore to me sometime earlier that it was only an alias. Eli's early photos did raise some suspicions. It was a while before I had seen them. But because of his profession, I was compelled to give him the benefit of the doubt. He certainly looked white in person, but it was years before I learned, and this I can also document, it was years before I learned that he had for a long time vitiligo, a disease which turns the skin white. If I could have known that, and if I knew his real name before we worked together, we certainly would never have worked together. He still denies that November is his real name, but it is easy to prove, and that is because Joseph November owns his car, his house, several other pieces of his real estate, and he is the father to his daughters, Elizabeth and Stephanie November. Joseph November is also listed as the principal owner of his business, which is called Eli James Publishing. It is also relatively easy to prove that November is a Jewish name and not a German name, as Eli also asserted at that time. That leads me to speculate concerning the reasons for Eli's vocal and hostile departure, because Eli didn't just go away. He went away making all sorts of slander, trying to discredit me. The reasons go beyond his own personal predicament. Around that time, as I also found out later, his daughter became engaged to marry an Egyptian named David Takla. Also at the same time, his daughter Stephanie had a Chinese boyfriend. I have videos from her old MySpace page. All of this is documented at the forum at Christagenia in a members-only section, but much of it is also found at a website called Anglo-Saxon Israel, where much of our dispute with Eli was mirrored. But I am not explaining all of this in order to revive an old dispute. In my mind, I won that dispute nine years ago, 
and I continue to win it with every podcast I produce, even if some people are too stupid to realize that. But rather, I only seek to make manifest the fact that all too often, men look to scripture in order to justify themselves, and they form doctrines from their own reasoning and circumstances, rather than agreeing with the scriptures and conforming themselves to scripture. When they do this, it always causes controversies and contradictions. But when men are comfortable where they are, with their current level of understanding, when they're stuck on one of those steps, whether it be British Israel, Rand, Compare, Swift, and they can continue to justify and validate it in their own minds, they will always be reluctant to expend any further effort to seek out a higher truth. And they reject it when they are confronted, especially if it makes them uncomfortable, especially if they think they're going to have to change some element in their lives in order to accept that truth. Like, your daughter with a nigger boyfriend has to go. Instead, you'd rather remain blind to the truth so that your daughter can be happy with her nigger. When, when Eli James and I split, he coined a term to describe what both myself and Clifton had taught from scriptures concerning the non-Adamic races, and he called us exterminationists. Of course, we saw through that as just another manifestation of the typical Bolshevik tactic of dehumanizing and then demonizing one's enemies. And the Jews are adept at that tactic. That is what they also did to Christ when he exclaimed, he has a devil. And today they do it to every man who resists Jewish supremacy. But as Eli did that, he also claimed that he was following on the footsteps of Swift and Compare, two of the most prominent two seed line teachers of the past. With that assertion, he also claimed that Clifton and I were hateful and that we made innovations justifying our hate. And at least a few people believed him, but it is certainly not true. While Clifton and I each believe that we have improved on Compare's message, we both also believe that Compare would have agreed with us if we ever could have spoken with him. We are also convinced that concerning what Eli had slandered as exterminationist, Compare also agreed with. Because unlike Eli, we have actually read all of Compare's sermons. In fact, most of Compare's sermons, which are posted at our archive at Christagenia, were manually digitized by Clifton from facsimiles of Gene Snyder's original transcriptions. So this evening, I'm going to present this sermon from Bertrand Compare in order to show that he certainly did agree with us in this regard. But first, I will make a disclaimer. Compare did not agree with us on the origin of the non-Adamic races. Rather, he believed in that eighth-day creation that we have soundly rejected. While I have not yet attempted a formal commentary on Genesis, which I never even believed I could do without first having finished my ongoing commentary on the New Testament, 
I did refute the misguided concept of an eighth-day creation in the opening segments of a series of podcasts I began in October of 2013 titled Pragmatic Genesis. But more importantly, Bertrand Compré does generally agree with us on the ultimate fate of the non-Adamic races. So the universalists who pretend to be Christian identity, such as Eli James, who smear us with this label of being exterminationists, certainly cannot claim to represent the traditional form of Christian identity, which Bertrand Compare exemplifies. This we shall see as we present and discuss Bertrand Compare's sermon. Again, this was taken from Gene Steiner's compilation of Compare sermons found under the title, Your Heritage. I believe it is still distributed in book form by Kingdom Identity Ministries, but this was digitized for electronic distribution by Clifton Emmeheiser, who added some of his own notes. We shall also include those at the end here. <clears throat> I'm sorry. This is The Sheep and the Goats by Bertrand Compare. Today, our newspapers, radio, television, and every media of public communications is turned into a propaganda machine flooding us with red-inspired propaganda against all discrimination. I would say that's Jewish-inspired propaganda, terms which Compare used nearly synonymously. They demand complete integration of all races, first in the cafes and hotels, then in the schools, and finally in the churches. They have induced fellow traveler clergymen to preach integration from their pulpits. Though first they denied it, these propagandists now admit that intermarriage and mongrelization of the races is their real purpose. Sometimes they try to justify their activities by preaching false doctrines of a so-called universal brotherhood of man and fatherhood of God. And a lot of Campari's material is done from a very narrow perspective of America and England good, and our system good, our political system good, and communism bad. He was definitely a product of the Cold War. The dawn of liberalism, which created both systems, basically, because liberalism is even Jewish, the dawn of liberalism brought with it concepts such as egalitarianism and the universal brotherhood of man. For over 300 years now, we have been fed these ideals in our propaganda. And in one way or another, most all of us have accepted them to at least some degree. But not long ago, relatively speaking, the other and non-Adamic races were not even considered to be people. And all Christians understood that Jews were devils even if they understood it only because they believed the gospel of Christ. Most men today do not even realize how deep their own indoctrination is, even when they claim to know better. 
Compre is right in that today many so-called churches do indeed encourage race mixing as a path to world peace and harmony, and he wrote this at least 40 years ago. Continuing with Compre for just a couple of sentences. Of all satanic false doctrines, this is one of the worst. It is completely contrary to the Bible, which always teaches division and segregation of the races. And up to this point, even Ted Wyland would agree with Compare. But as he proceeds, here is where they would begin to argue, and Wyland would even begin to lie about the intent of Scripture. Yahshua always said that he had come to divide and separate, not to mix everyone together. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33, he says, And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, this is the parable of the sheep and the goats, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. When I split with Eli James, he also tried to explain this parable away as a judgment of individuals, claiming that even the goats had an opportunity to do good, as a superficial reading of the parable may suggest. At the time, on February 7th, 2011, I responded with a podcast titled Jeremiah 31, Beasts, Sheep, and Goat Nations. When we split several weeks earlier, Eli and I were in the middle of a series discussing Jeremiah, and it was conveniently terminated just before this segment was scheduled. So I subtitled it, The Program That Eli James Couldn't Do. I do not remember everything I said since there were no prepared notes and it was all extemporaneous. However, here Compare says a lot of what I would also assert, and he condemns the notion that this represents a judgment of individuals. So we continue. Note that this is not the judgment of individual persons. It is a division and separation of nations. He goes on to tell how the sheep nations are given the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world, while the goat nations are cast into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who are these nations? A sheep nation can only be made up of sheep, and a goat nation, one consisting of goats. Therefore, let's find out who are the sheep. Now, even though this, term is, this sermon is titled The Sheep and the Goats, Compre did not cover much more of the parable of the sheep and the goats than that. But he correctly insists that the sheep and the goats are nations because they are the subject of the statement where Christ said, that he would separate them as a sheep 
as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. So ask yourself how a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Does he go to each animal and say, were you a sheep today or did you misbehave so you were a goat today? Were you a goat today or did you behave well so that you could be a sheep today? No, that's not how a shepherd separates animals. He separates them on sight. That's how the nations will be separated when the Son of Man returns, on sight, as nations, not as individuals. One other thing that Eli James did not realize, and that Comparate did not mention here, is why the goats were judged and condemned so harshly. Christ told the sheep in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So they would all go to the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But then Christ told the goats in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, not meaning the goats, meaning the sheep, ye did it not to me. So it is clear that the goats are judged not according to how they treated one another, but according to how they treated the sheep, and for that they are all condemned. One other thing which Compre had apparently never understood is our assertion as to why the goats share the same fate as that of the devil and his angels. And that is because their origin was with the devil and his angels. For which reason, in Genesis, Yahweh had created only one race of man, the Adamic race whereas we have all these other races among us today, which the Revelation describes as the flood from the mouth of the serpent. But Comparet did well in other respects, so we continue. And he says, you who have listened to these lessons for some time know the Israel of the Bible. Yahweh's chosen people exist today in the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, Germanic nations, not the Jews. We have proven this many times and need not repeat it here. <clears throat> of course, we understand that there are other historically white nations which have also descended in whole or in part from the Israelites of the scripture, beyond those which Compare mentions here. However, his description will suffice for our purposes this evening. So again, we continue. It should not surprise you to learn that Yahweh's chosen people, Israel, constitute the sheep nations, as the Bible says. For example, in Psalm 100, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Jeremiah chapter 50 confirms this. My people have been lost sheep and their shepherds have caused them to go astray. Ezekiel chapter 34 promises, behold, I, even I, will both search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. 
And as for you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Evidently, Clifton added the word sheep in brackets before the word rams. Of course, the rams are the males of the flock, so they are also sheep. Reading the scriptures from beginning to end, it is absolutely clear that in the word of God, the references to sheep describe only the children of Israel and no others. So Compare continues, fulfilling these words, meaning the words of Ezekiel chapter 34, where Yahweh said that he would search out the sheep. Fulfilling these words, Yahshua said that this was his mission. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He taught his disciples that this was to be their purpose also. In Matthew chapter 10, we read, These twelve, Yahshua sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And while this verse sounds appropriate, I have before explained that prior to Peter's vision, the apostles would have understood the words of Christ in that passage to be a reference to those of Israel of the circumcision only. Only later, as it is revealed in, this, in the epistles of Peter and James, and especially of Paul, did the apostles learn the history and scripture which led them to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Many of these Samaritans and so-called Gentiles in Palestine at the time had indeed descended from the 12 scattered tribes. Compare continues to make his case on the difference between sheep and goats and scores some very excellent points. A sheep is a sheep, he says, by its genetic nature, its race. It can't become a goat by straying away from the flock. Christ said that in a parable that he would leave 99 goats on a mountain and go and find that one that strayed away from the flock. The goats run with the flock, but that can't make sheep out of them. You simply can't make a sheep out of a goat, and Yahshua never tried to do so. As you already know, the Jews are not any part of Israel and never were. Therefore, Yahshua never tried to make converts of them. While it is true that the Jews are not truly Judah, nor of any other tribe of Israel, this is somewhat of an oversimplification, and therefore it is not entirely accurate. When we are not entirely accurate, there will always be a critic who uses that one little mistake to prove that everything we say is wrong, which is ridiculous, but that's how the Jews operate. They operate by criticizing everything. They undermined Western civilization. Over 200 years, the 18th and 19th centuries, by being critical of everything, by publishing critical books about 
everything, tearing down the confidence of men in their own society. The Judahites of Jerusalem did forcibly convert Edomites and other Canaanites to Judaism for the most part. And approximately between the years 129 BC and 76 BC, but then they began to intermarry with the Edomites that they had converted, so that some of them can claim to have been descended from Judah. Even the first Herod, who is identified as an Edomite by Josephus, had married into the family of high priests, the Hasmoneans, by taking to wife Mariam, the daughter of Alexander II, who was the high priest in Jerusalem when it was conquered by the Romans in 63 BC. Herod, in league with the Romans against his wife's family, eventually eliminated all of them and became king himself. But here our point is this. By the time of Herod, there were no barriers to the intermarriage of Judaites, the original Israelites of Judah who returned, and he supposedly converted Edomites. And it had evidently even become quite common. In that is the origin of the Jews. And in John chapter 8, they denied being children of fornication while Christ ensured them otherwise. So, after accurately professing that Christ had never tried to convert them, Compare continues. And he says, to the contrary, he always taught among them in public using parables, which they could not understand. But Yahshua always explained the parables privately to his disciples, who were Israelites. He stated his reason for this in Mark chapter 4. Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of Yahweh, but unto them that are without, meaning outside, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see but not perceive, and hearing they may hear but not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. Accordingly, in John chapter 10, verse 26 through 28, but ye believe not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. Just the fact that there are them who are without should prove that there are people that Christ did not come for. Otherwise, he would never say that he didn't want those who are outside to not understand him. He would never say that. Ted Wyland and all of these quacks who think that Jews could be converted to Christianity are professing something which is absolutely contrary to Christ. Comparate continues, Yahshua warned all Christians not to try to give the blessings of his kingdom to people who couldn't understand and appreciate it. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, he commanded, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and rend you.
But we always have to try and show God how much better we are than he is. So we always violate his commandments. And this is also absolutely true. As we observe it in the words and actions of Eli James, Ted Weiland, Charles Weissman, that even men who profess to know their Christian identity will nevertheless make excuses for so-called people who are not a part of the covenants and who have no part with Christ. I have heard ridiculous arguments such as, oh, the Canaanite woman was a dog, but that doesn't mean that all Canaanites were dogs. Or that does not mean the other races are also dogs. The bottom line is they certainly aren't sheep. Of course, I am paraphrasing, but where we have wheat and tares, or sheep and goats, or sons and bastards, there are always only two parties, one to be destroyed and one to be saved. There are never any third or neutral parties, ever. You won't find one in Scripture. Yet, these men are always trying to create a third category on their own. Show me the third party in the parable of the net. There's good racial fish, kind, genos, and there's wicked racial fish. And when the nets dipped into the sea, and the good fish are gathered up and stored into vessels, the bad fish are not thrown back into the sea. They're thrown into the fire. Who the hell would want to pollute the sea by putting the niggers back into Atlanta? Christ had said, as it is in Matthew chapter 13, that the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. That's only sheep. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And even if we understand that word world to mean society, as we should, then we must understand that wherever we have brought our society, that is become a part of our world. So Yahweh said in Jeremiah on two occasions in chapters 30 and 45, but here we will read it from chapter 45. Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee. That's about everywhere. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. There are other scriptures which support that position, many others. And with this understanding, we may be able to see how Compare certainly does agree with our position on the issue of race as he continues and says, The pearls Yahweh has given us are freedom, wealth, and power. We cast them before the jungle savages of the Congo and the murderous hordes of China. As he warned us, they trample our gifts in the mud of their evil desires, then turn upon us to destroy us. We give that which is holy, our Christian religion, 
which the savages can no more understand than they can astronomical mathematics. Well, if you look at today's movies, we have black she-booms doing astronomical mathematics, but only in the movies. We give that which is holy, our Christian religion, which the savages can no more understand than they can astronomical mathematics, to those whom Yahshua calls dogs. And the natural inevitable result is the many Christian missionaries in China who are already murdered or slowly dying in prison. Many Christian missionaries are fleeing the Congo to escape being eaten. And it's not only in the Congo that missionaries are eaten. But this is actually recorded as having happened on far more than one occasion. Compare passed in 1983, but I am certain that he would have been entertained by an August 2007 article in the British newspaper, The Telegraph, which was titled, Cannibal Tribe Apologizes for Eating Methodists. One line of the article reads, a tribe in Papua New Guinea has apologized for killing and eating four 19th century missionaries under the command of a dowdy British clergyman. Earlier in November of 2003, another British newspaper, The Guardian, ran a similar article titled, titled Fijians Apologize for Eaton Missionary. It opens by saying, Fijian villagers wept yesterday as they apologized to descendants of a British missionary who was eaten by their ancestors more than 130 years ago. A brief survey of Google results for words for the words missionaries eaten cannibals reveals that missionaries have been eaten by South Pacific Islanders, by Southeast Asians, by Africans, by Mexicans, and by South Americans. So the problem and the inherent character which these tribes exhibit is far-reaching among non-white races. If any of these tribes have apologized, it is only under the compulsion of the more powerful Western civilization, which has attempted to change that inherent character. But once they are left to their own devices, as we now observe in many Western cities, they quickly revert back to their natural behavior. We cannot change goats into sheep. So, Compare again continues. Do you think that we were supposed to convert all the world? Men have said that, but Yahweh said the exact opposite. In John chapter 17, verse 9, Yahshua said, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, given me, for they are thine, they are yours. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Yahshua said that he himself is the bread of life. But in Matthew chapter 15, when the Syrophoenician woman asked his help as son of David, the head of Yahweh's people Israel, he refused. He told her it was not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Not until she recognized that she could not approach him as one of his people 
and said, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. He then, did he then grant her request? This situation is even more complex. Eli James tried to twist this one passage into the salvation of millions of spicks and niggers, I swear. This situation is even more complex as one must understand the customs of noblemen and suppliants at that time. And that Christ was following, he was following the custom of honoring the suppliant, which was quite ancient. We have discussed this several times, but most fully in an August 2013 presentation titled The Canaanite Woman, the Biblical Perspective. Significantly, the fact that Christ healed the woman's daughter does not mean that Canaanites or any other races may be redeemed or saved. However, if we did not have this episode, then we would not have had an illustration of the important racial message which it contains. So certainly even this was within the providence of God for which to further explain his purpose. Compare continues. The blessings of peace, and here we are going to sharply disagree with Compare. The blessings of peace, good government, education, sanitation and good health, prosperity, in short, civilization, these can be given to those who are of other races. No, it can't be given to them. It can only be forced on them. Even the British had to basically conquer China before they could simply industrialize it. They had to subdue it first. Part of that subduing of China was done by pumping drugs into China, just like they keep pumping drugs into the streets of American cities and the countryside. <clears throat> it is not to be given to those who would seize it for themselves, saying, we are just as much sheep as you are. We make ourselves sheep by saying so. <clears throat> no, they must recognize Yahweh's own order of things. He gives his commandments and his instructions on how to obtain his blessings to his people Israel. We are to obey his commandments and demonstrate to the world how obedience to him has made us the have nations compared to the pagan have not nations. If they will come to us for instruction in his laws, we who are his witnesses will instruct them and they can grow into civilizations as far and as fast as they will obey. And Compare had this idea of dominion theology. But there's a difference. He knew it was destined to fail. But even that is wrong. He was wrong for this, as David said in the Psalms. The law was only given to Israel. Yahweh had not done so with any other people. And David praised God because he had not given the law to other nations besides Israel. 
There's nowhere where Christ tells the apostles to take his law to other nations, to take heathens and try to civilize them and show them the law and teach them the law. Nowhere. To Comfrey's credit, he knew Dominion theology was destined to fail, as we shall see, and as we have already seen, where he's explained that all the goats go into the lake of fire. So while we generally agreed with Compare up until this last paragraph, here we must sharply disagree. While Compare's final conclusion is correct, that all the goat nations ultimately go into the lake of fire, the fact that other races have benefited from us has always been an aspect of our punishment. They always come to rule over us when we share our blessings with them. And this is also an aspect of the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience found in the books of the law in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Compare is using the discourse between Christ and the Canaanite woman to create a doctrine, but it is not a fit doctrine as it conflicts with other scriptures. First, the children of Israel were punished for free trade with other nations, as we read in Hosea chapter 2. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Yahweh had commanded the children of Israel to be a separate people, and that command still stands. Yahweh knew that if they were not a separate people, that they wouldn't civilize the other races, but that the opposite would happen, that the other races would degrade, would lead the children of Israel to a degraded state. So in that same place where they realized their error, where they were prophesied, to realize their error and return to God in Christ, we read, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal, trading with non-Adamic, non-Israelite nations. We benefit them, and therefore we benefit their God. We debase ourselves rather than civilizing them. So, if we shouldn't exchange goods with them, how the hell should we give them the law of our God? How? Compare was wrong for that. I wish I could tell him, but perhaps he knows it now. Then, we're just even speaking of other Adamic nations. The children of Israel were told in Isaiah chapter 60 that in their captivity, Surely the isles shall wait for me, and in the places of their captivity. And the ships of Tarshish first, 
to bring thy sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of Yahweh thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their king shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually, meaning there would be no military threat. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yeah, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon, the parable of the sheep and the goats, tell us that none of those nations are going to serve the goats. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee. The fir tree, the pine tree, and the box together, a different sort of tree, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. And they shall call thee the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the nations, Gentiles or nations, and thou shalt suck the breast of kings, and thou shalt know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. For brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for brass and for stones iron. I will also make thy officers peace, and thine exactors righteousness. Then in Isaiah chapter 61, a little further on, But ye shall be named the priests of Yahweh. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the nations, and in their glory shall you boast yourselves. With this it should be evident that the children of Israel scattered abroad should rightfully have been enslaving all other people as the early Germanic tribes had done and taking whatever belongs to them for their own. Then those nations who would not serve them should have been killed. That is the commission in Isaiah. And once again, we failed to live up to it. But ultimately, it shall be completed in Christ. As he continues, however, Compare does have the correct conclusion. Russia and China have taken only our manufacturing technology, not our religion or our ideals. They have learned to make tanks, cannon, bombs, and bayonets, but the brutal, tyrannical horror they have in their lands is not civilization by any standard. Goats cannot become sheep. Compare, a product of the Cold War, was a little hard on Russia. Originally, at least in the late medieval period and into modern times, Russia was a great Christian nation comprised of mostly Germanic and Slavic tribes, which had become an empire ruling over people of many other races. 
Then communism practically eradicated public expressions of Christianity in Russia. But that does not mean that all of the people ceased to be Christians. There certainly were white Christians in Russia, as Compare wrote, although they were a minority of all who came to be called Russian. Now continuing with Compare, Yahweh's truth is eternal. It never changes with the times and fashions. His word is still true today, as he told the prophet in Amos chapter 3. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. It is still true, as Isaiah 63, verses 17 through 19 says, O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our hearts from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sake, the tribes of thy inheritance, the people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Here, Compare almost atones for his earlier mistakes, but he should have realized that the, that, that the statements conflicted with one another, and he did not. Now he goes on towards his conclusion, and he says, Do you think this will ever change? No, for in the book of Revelation, Yahweh has given us a picture of the new Jerusalem, the eternal city of Yahweh, coming into existence to last forever. This is after the millennium, and we will discuss that shortly. And he says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12, this city is surrounded by a wall great and high and 12 gates and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. There is only one way to enter into that city. It is to go in through a gate and the only gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. We are told in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates to the city. So Compare properly understood that in the end, there would only be 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. Compare was a bit of a futurist in that he thought the thousand year rule of Christ, the so-called millennium was still in the future. There's an important reason for that, which I will try to explain. An insertion into a line of Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, forces one to make that conclusion. So it wasn't entirely his fault, as he never really studied the original Greek manuscripts. If he had, he may also have realized that the line concerning the resurrection of the dead was not original, and that the millennium was already in the past. This is one thing which distinguishes my own work from that of Compare, or even of Emma Heiser. If Compare realized that, he wouldn't have made that mistake that we can rule over and give the law to these non-Israelite, non-Adamic nations. And that's because, if you look at Revelation chapter 20, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit. And then it says that he would be sealed up a thousand years. 
And then it says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were behead, beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the work of God. And which had not worshipped the beast nor his image. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So, because the saints would live and reign with Christ a thousand years. Compre saw that millennium as the period when Christ is ruling over all nations and races. And he saw that as still being in the future. He didn't imagine that Satan was bound into the pit historically in the 5th century AD. And he didn't imagine that Satan came out of the pit historically when the Jews achieved emancipation in, in Europe at the beginning of the 19th, of, of the 19th century with Napoleon. And it says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And that is the line that was inserted into scripture that causes all of this confusion, that causes somebody to skew this prophecy and put it far into the future. Because then it says that Satan would be loosed out of his prison. So you must envision a thousand-year reign in Christ, after which there is a resurrection of the dead, and then Satan would be led out of his prison and deceive all the nations in Gog and Magog to battle against the camp of the saints. So you have to imagine that that happens under the rule of a physical Jesus Christ on earth who would have a thousand-year physical rule and then somehow blow it. And Satan gets out of the pit and attacks him. And that's what Compare had envisioned because he took it for granted that every word here is in the original manuscripts, that every word here is true. And of course, I didn't realize that every word here wasn't true until I learned Greek in prison and sat and read the, the entire New Testament on, on several occasions from cover to cover in Greek. And reading the Revelation in Greek is the only way you're going to realize when you see that this line is only in certain late manuscripts that it didn't really belong in the original. So when you yank this line out, <clears throat> then you could put together a clear picture, historical picture of what Revelation chapter 20 is actually saying. Compare couldn't do that. It led to this mistake, and it evidently also led to the mistake that the other nations were going to be forced to live under the laws of Christ. And it's not true. Yank that line out, and all the pieces fall into place. Now Compare concludes, Don't apologize for being one of Yahweh's sheep, a citizen of a sheep nation. And this conclusion is very good. Be proud of it. Be worthy of it. And walk rejoicing in your destiny. And of course, we do not have to apologize. All we have to do is realize that if our birth was from above, 
meaning that we were born of the Adamic race created by God, then our destiny is in his kingdom. And we can never change that for ourselves. But if one is not of the Adamic race, he has no future in the kingdom of God and nothing he does can ever change that. Now Clifton has a few notes, which we saved for the end. Compare did a much better job with this presentation by putting the other races in their proper place, which is no place at all. When he said goats cannot become sheep, he was right on target. Compare rightly quoted Amos chapter 3 verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Compare could have reinforced this passage by quoting Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 which says, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The German tribes, who were the good figs of Judah, fulfilled Daniel's prophecy here. If the true Israelites are the only people known by Yahweh, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. How can anyone attempt to include the other races in the kingdom? How can a member of a goat race accept Yahshua Christ as their personal savior? There is absolutely no way a goat can accept Yahshua Christ as a kinsman redeemer, for a goat is not a kinsman. Although Compre did well with this theme, he did an about-face when he said the blessings of peace, good government, education, sanitation, good health, prosperity, and civilization can be given to those who are of other races. And secondly, if they will come to us for instruction in his laws, we who are witnesses will instruct them and they can grow into civilizations as far and as fast as they will obey. Question. If we do all this for the other races, is this not casting our pearls before swine? Has history not proven all of this to be a futile effort? As I have said, neither Clifton nor I have ever pretended to be pronouncing new revelations. We have only given further study to what was already there, to what has always been there, and properly New revelation only comes from deeper study of the original source materials from a better perspective. That better perspective was originally attained by the archaeologists of the 18th and 19th centuries who had discovered the monuments and inscriptions which enabled Bible students in Europe to realize the truth of their Christian identity. However, they only patched that understanding over their old Judaized forms of denominational Christianity. Now, a hundred and seventy years later, and with the gift of their perspective, we have been able to study the scriptures much deeper than our predecessors were able to do. And that better perspective has indeed given us a much greater understanding. But we were only able to do what things we have done upon the foundation of covenant theology without all of the baggage of universalist church doctrines. So we have indeed arrived at conclusions, which even Compare did not have. 
However, these are not innovations. They are all documented in scripture, and in spite of the things he did not have, Compare certainly did agree with our final conclusion. The goats cannot ever become sheep. The sheep all go into the kingdom of God without exception, and the goats all go to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels without exception. We don't want to mock our fellow sheep when they do not understand these things, but rather we pray that they do eventually choose to investigate and understand them. As for the wolves in sheep's clothing, who have seen these things and refuse to accept them, who instead choose to contend with the word of God, they deserve to be mocked. Rather, identity Christians must understand that British Israel, Howard Rand, and even Cap, Swift, Compare, and all the others were only stepping stones on the path to a better understanding. But that better understanding can only come from studying the scriptures from their original languages, because all prior translations were made from the perspective of replacement theology, and from continuing the work begun by Rand and Compare, which is to put the scriptures translated as clearly as possible into their proper historical context. That has been our sole endeavor these past 20 and two years. And while we may not be perfect, Yahweh willing, we shall improve that path and do our best to repair or remove all the loose and broken stones for those who follow after. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.